Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, I'm not sure how tech savvy or entrepreneurial you were at 13. I certainly wasn't. But Max Trest from BC, he learned to code at just six. He's developed a highly anticipated new video game for Sony PlayStation. He even has his own independent video game studio. And you know what? He doesn't even really enjoy playing video games, just building them. He tells us why. The fallout continues in Ottawa from an invite extended to a veteran who fought in a Nazi unit in the Second World War to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's address to Parliament last Friday. We hear from Canada's former chief of protocol about how exactly that kind of invite would have been extended and why more wasn't done to stop it from happening. And we hear why this blunder heard around the world should cause this country to finally be more transparent about who was allowed into Canada in the years after the Second World War and why. Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe is turning to the notwithstanding clause. Can you imagine the notwithstanding clause after a judge paused his government's policy requiring parental consent for kids under 16 to change their names or pronouns at school? We ask why he's turning to the nuclear option so quickly and with so much comfort in violating the charter rights of kids in his province. But first, protests have resumed at a landfill near Winnipeg where police believe the remains of two First Nations women were taken last year, suspected victims of a serial killer. It comes after the incumbent Progressive Conservatives, there's an election campaign going on, they go to the polls on Tuesday, use their opposition to funding that search in a campaign ad, boasting about it. We hear reaction from Grand Chief Kathy Merrick of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. But we begin tonight in Manitoba, where a blockade on a road leading to the entrance of a landfill near Winnipeg is back on. Really, it's a protest. Police believe the remains of two First Nations women suspected to have been the victims of a serial killer were taken there last year. And there have been repeated calls since for a search of the site. But the protest this time around is not in response to that as much as it is to Manitoba's progressive conservatives taking out a full-page ad in a Winnipeg paper on the weekend and a billboard as well saying they stand firm on their decision not to search the landfill for the remains of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Miran. Um, in other words, politicizing this, bragging about it. And these are the you know, these are women who've been killed. Their families are waiting for some sort of closure here. And, and meanwhile, it's being politicized. So there's been a huge backlash against that. Of course, Manitoba is getting set for an election on Monday. The NDP are uh, far, fairly ahead in the polls right now. So the progressive conservatives are certainly worried about losing. But this tactic has been very much criticized. Uh, here's one of the protesters out at the landfill site speaking with Global News. That is why this barricade came up. It was a motivation, uh, a motivation in the spirit to say that, you know, what Heather Stafford if you're not, again, if you're going to push a campaign against, you know, Sister Cambria, against the MMIW, against search the landfills, and then you know what? The warriors will, will stand here. Right. So that protest continues. Meantime, a study examining whether a successful search of the landfill was possible did say it would take up to three years and cost about $184 million. It looked at various scenarios and challenges that come with the search, uh, but figured out that it is indeed feasible. Uh, the One of the groups who presented that uh, feasibility study a while back was the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. The Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is Kathy, Kathy Merrick. Uh, she's a councillor and former chief of the uh, Pimikamak Cree Nation in northern Manitoba, and she joins us now. Grand Chief, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. This was a this was a 
you know, I, I've been following this quite a bit. We've spoken to to Cambria on the show before. I know how emo, how you know how sensitive this issue is. Uh, what happened over the weekend must have been. I, I can't really find the words. How did you react all of a sudden? This this issue being sort of plastered in the election campaign. It was uh, very disheartening to to be able to see all the uh, the negativity in terms of uh, our women that are in the landfills and for a premier to come out and basically say that uh, they would not search it. And it's very disheartening for the family. I, I see them because I'm with them and I mm-hmm. see the, their pain through through their eyes every time they talk about the, their loved ones that are missing. Yeah. I mean, you did this feasibility study, I know, and clearly, you know, there, there's been talk about the cost. But when one thinks about these women and their families, you would think that, I mean, you've argued that, that really this has to be done. This needs to be done. Correct. And it, it, and it all goes back to human, human dignity of our people. Our people should not be ending up in uh, landfills. Our women should not be ending up in landfills. So the right thing to do is to ensure that, this, uh, that the search in the landfills be done in, in a timely manner. For all I know, maybe we could have found them already. It's almost been a year. In December, it's going to be a year. We've been doing all the work that uh, was required of us. We did a feasibility study. Nowhere in this country has a feasibility study ever been conducted to find missing and murdered Indigenous women. So we did that. We did that under duress. We, We proved that it could be done, and it should be done. Yeah, I mean, I know you're the first woman chief of the Assembly of Manitoba. Chiefs, congratulations on that, by the way. I know it's been a little bit of time. This must be, I mean, the whole no, the whole issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls must be something close to you, too, as well. Yes, for sure, because uh, I do have uh, granddaughters. I do have numerous nieces. And for myself as a mother, for myself as a grandmother, I would walk to the end of the world to be able to... Uh, to look for my loved ones. And I can attest to the fact that these families are together. They, they uh, cry together. They organize. And they're doing all the work that should be done. And nobody should stop them. And even though that, that, they're, that what's happening at the blockade right now, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a manifestation of this frustration that everybody makes decisions and, and, and making these stands about not doing the landfills and whatnot. So they're not riot, riots or violence. They simply mm-hmm. seek a thorough search of the landfills to find answers and to bring their loved ones home. Yeah, I was reading when you were elected that uh, the Premier, Heather Stephenson, congratulated you, talked about working with you. Yes, and, yes. And then, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's sad. Uh, we're we're in a crossroads of uh, of reconciliation for our people in the province of Manitoba, and uh, with all this is, that's happening right now, I don't know where that's going, but uh, I do see the good as well. I do see where uh, just just today there was an announcement of uh, in Thompson, Manitoba, they did a land acknowledgement. Safeway did a land acknowledgement. Even in my co-op here in Southdale, there's a land acknowledgement when you walk into the store. So these are good things. 
and and we need to be able to work together we need to be able to to show that life is precious and that we as a custom as our custom we need to be able to go through that process of uh of burying our loved ones and not leave, leaving them in landfills yeah i mean i know this is we often treat each of these as individual issues as individual stories but this is a much bigger this is a much bigger story, isn't it? This, th- these two yeah. women, this landfill, the processes you've gone through to try to get this search done, this speaks to something. It feels like this speaks to yes. something not just bigger in Manitoba, but in many other places too. Yes, it is. And, and it's time that we wake up. It's time that the governments wake up and listen to the concerns of, uh, of our First Nation people that are trying to do the work. And we've come a long way in terms of uh, bringing issues. And, and it's time that uh, in Manitoba here that our First Nation leaders be at the table, be at the table when decisions are made on behalf of our people. That has not happened. So this is something where we we would very much like to go in terms of uh, our chiefs, in terms of our leaders, the rights holders, of of uh, to be able to do that. And and uh, and there's so much um, support. Like even the Canadian Human Rights Museum supports United Church of Canada, multiple unions, Amnesty International have come forward and. We just need to convince the government to do it. It's not yeah. about money. I'm not. I'm not worried about money. People. People look at the money. But if we would have done it, maybe we, you know, we would have found them already. Where 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 they're deemed to be like it's been left alone for almost a year now. So we need to do the work. We're able to, as explained in the feasibility study, we need to train people. We need to train our own people to do the search and and whatnot. So I I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And the idea of of using it as a political weapon as well. I mean, you know, I understand the way politics works, but it seems to me that some things things are beyond politics. And this was one of them. That is so cruel. That's got to be one of the cruelest things that uh, that can happen, and we we bring other tactics in terms of uh, in terms of the of this uh, election, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not right. I've never seen it. I've never seen our people be uh, be one of the main topics when it comes to. If it was a good thing, yes, I would. I would clap my hands if they were willing to work with First Nation people, but everything that's been brought forth in terms of our people is negative, and that's not right. Um, uh, Grand Chief, I did have a question from a listener that was wondering, just, it is provincial property, right? That's that's part of the issue here. I mean, I think it's private property, but it would be up to the province to, to carry this out, or at least correct. pay for it. Right. And right. Correct. Correct, and that's the uh, conversation between the federal government to the province because the province is the one that uh, that has the land rights, the approval. That's uh, that's the whole um, thing about this whole process. Is she only needs to say yes, right. nothing. She doesn't have to do anything after that. And there was other means and ways where uh, Chief Carr Wilson has uh, talked to the mayor. Maybe we can transfer lands or whatnot. So those are the discussions that are also happening. But I just want to go back a little bit into the, sure. uh, and I think it's important that um, it's not a First Nation issue about the search of the landfill. 
Mm-hmm. And according to uh, when Stephenson uh, uh, declared that she would never search a landfill, she essentially communicated that irrespective of who you are, your right. background, your beliefs, or economic status, if you go missing in the province of Manitoba, she won't initiate a search for you. So that's do you think that's, do you think that's true? Saying. I, I wonder, I wonder, Grand Chief, I mean, I've covered, you know, the, the, the Madeleine McCann story in England, and I wonder if this were children, I, and I wonder, I think she might be down there digging herself if it were somebody else. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. And yeah. uh, the, 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 the churches called her out on it and whatever, and, that, and those were the ones that said, right, if it was your daughter, uh, you would do anything to bring your daughter home. And so that's yeah. the same sentiments that uh, our families feel. They just want to bring them home. This is so all those swirling are the away. things that yeah. that uh, that's really escalating in terms of this. So that's where we're we have at. This all, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, I can hear it. Uh, this is all swirling around uh, with an election coming up, obviously. But it's also National Day of Truth and Reconciliation on Saturday. It's your first as Grand Chief. Um, and, and with all this happening around, what would what message would you like, would you like to – what will you be thinking about on Saturday? What message would you like to put out there uh, today? Well, there's so much uh, injustice to our people. And it's finally coming to light where we – and this has all started with the uh, Every Child Matters where uh, the, the, the young woman that wasn't able to wear her orange T-shirt mm-hmm. in residential school. So there's the residential schools. There was the 60s scoop. There was a presently CFS Now. Mm-hmm. So all these things are about our children. And you know what? We love our children. Our parents loved us. Our grandparents loved us. But they didn't have a choice. They had no choice. They came and scooped away their children to try to integrate them into into society. We lost our language. We lost our tradition, our culture, our our relationship to the land and water. And so finally, we're coming we're coming around to that where we need to be able to uh, ensure that our children know that our children know that they were loved this regardless of any policy that states or that says that we that we weren't good enough to to raise our children so to me as a mother as a grandmother where i acknowledge all the work that has been done this far in terms of reconciliation in terms of the little things that are happening throughout turtle island and that someday we're going to come to a crossroads where we'll say thank you, but we're not there yet. Not there yet. Well, Grand Chief no. Merrick, I, I thank you so much for your time. I, if you have anything, anything to add, go ahead. Yes. Yes, and I'll be there uh, on, Saturday on Saturday to be able to support uh, the march that's going to be happening and to be able to attend the powwow that's going to mm-hmm. be happening. And I encourage everybody to come out and to show their support. Well, Grand Chief Merrick, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Have a good night. The notwithstanding clause was created. I don't think anyone ever thought that it would be used for something like this. But here we are. Today, Saskatchewan's Premier, Scott Moe, announced he'd be using that nuclear option to make sure the province's pronoun policy 
remains in place. That policy requires parental consent when children under 16 want to go by a different name and pronoun at school. Scott Moe announced the move today, not long after a Saskatchewan judge granted an injunction to pause the policy. Here's Mo explaining why earlier, before today, why he thinks this policy is necessary. We have the opportunity to look at a policy that is going to bring families closer together um, in this respect, in their education. We need to look at that and look at that seriously. And you're seeing other governments across the nation do the same. Well, one other government, to be precise, in New Brunswick, but it's true that a few others are also looking at this. Opponents filed a lawsuit calling for the policy to be struck down, arguing that it violates the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Here's what critics of the policy have been saying. Uh, Jamie Sadgrove is with the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity. When we think about the reasons that kids might not want to tell their parents or, or be comfortable with that being disclosed to their parents, um, it's often because they don't have a supportive family at home. So in a 56-page ruling today, that judge in Saskatchewan wrote, quote, I determined the protection of these youth surpasses that interest expressed by the government pending a full and complete hearing. It wasn't struck down, per se, it was paused until a full hearing could take place. Still, the premier called it judicial overreach, announced he'd be recalling parliament on the 10th and invoked 10th of October and invoking the notwithstanding clause, which overrides the charter, essentially, and negates the judge's decision at this point, as far as I can tell. Um, you must think that if Scott Moe is going this far, he had been flooded, that his office had been flooded with communication on this one, right, from concerned people right across the province, really worried about this, and then sat down and spent a long time trying to strike the right balance here between the rights of the children and the rights to protect those who are vulnerable and, you know, the rights of parents to know, uh, you'd be wrong. Court records show the policy was drafted in nine days after the province received 18 letters. 18. There have been 50 times more letters written about speed bumps in the areas that I live in than that. So what exactly is going on here? We'll talk about that in a bit, but I really wanted to get to the bottom of the politics of this, or the, sorry, the, the, the legality of this, because the use of the notwithstanding clause, of course, is the purview of, of provinces, but it was reserved for a long time for quite specific uh, circumstances. I was in Quebec living there the first time it was invoked quite dramatically and quite controversially. Uh, Rebecca Johnson is a professor of law at the University of Victoria, and she joins me now. Rebecca, thank you so much. My pleasure. So perhaps just the, the idea of, of when a province, what a province uh, sort of gains by, by invoking the notwithstanding clause uh, in this situation, because it seems like a quite, it seems like quite the option to use given what's happened here. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's super surprising, right? Um, and it's surprising in a number of ways. Um, one is, uh, the context in which it's being evoked. So as you kind of noticed, noted in the run-up, usually the notwithstanding clause shows up once a court has already concluded that legislation that a government has put together does violate the charter. So notwithstanding comes in when a government really gets to say, we don't care, even though mm. we accept that it is a charter-violating um, a piece of legislation. There are other political reasons why we need to do this, even knowing that this is charter violating. And then we have in the background the notion that um, as a population, we have five years to kind of return and vote them out. Now, keep in mind, part of the question here is about also um, who decide is our rights just a matter of what the majority thinks, or is there a reason why we think about rights as being something 
that is not only what the majority of us believe in, right? But, right. but in any event, one of the questions is, is this subject matter the kind of thing that is so important and so necessary to the polity that it's worth saying we would violate rights notwithstanding? So that's one question. But here it's so surprising because we haven't even had a court conclude that. No, so we, just, we had a pause. Happened, <laughs> we had a pause, you know, yeah. All that's happened is the court has said, we, we need to just be able to have the space where there can be so sober reflection and discussion in a neutral form and a chance for the government to, to say why this policy is important that goes beyond um, what it feels a bit like right now, which is because I said so. Right? So it's just interesting um, to think about what kind of the political moment is that would lead the premier to think that um, that the legislation can't be stood up for scrutiny and consideration and reflection. Yeah, well, maybe perhaps because it was written in nine days. I mean, that was a part no, of the part of the problem. It's yeah. a bit quick for for this sort of thing. I mean, we've heard a lot. I mean, these are the kinds of terms that have been coming up, and I think this has been forgotten sometimes in this whole argument. We've heard a lot of talk of quote parental rights, but children have rights. Children have rights that are protected as well, and I think that's kind of gotten lost in this. I mean, Canada's signatory to the UN Char- the UN uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. I remember when that happened back when I was a child. Um, and, you know, children's rights are protected within the Charter of Human Rights in this country, too. Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the, I, I find myself thinking back to being a child myself and reading books and exploring the world. And I don't know if any of your readers are old enough to remember Enid Blyton's books, oh, The indeed. Famous Five. The Famous right, Five, so, yeah. Yeah, so there's like, you know, the Trixie Beldens, the Nancy Drews, the Hardy Boys of an earlier generation um, in the 40s. And in those books, Georgina, one of the main characters, demanded by everyone to be called George. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think it's interesting that right now we're in this moment where uh, people want to think about that as a rights question rather than as a freedom question. Mm-hmm. So kind of the freedom of kids to to be able to say what they want to be called without everyone worrying that all of a sudden, like people are panicky. And it's um, sometimes I think good to remember that it's not only like we, this will be our, this will be in the courts using the language of rights. But one of the questions is what does it mean for parents to support their kids? And sometimes that support means leaving space for some freedom, right? That, That the parents don't make the decisions. Of course, parents want to know what their kids are doing, but we don't have the school phoning the parents every time the kid does something that, um, you know, that the parent might not like. Like there's, there's yeah. something important for all of us in thinking about the spaces of freedom that we have where those freedoms don't harm other people. I mean, I, I get, I mean, there's been polls on this and that we don't put too much faith in all polls, but it showed that a fair amount of Canadians think that parents do have some right to information. And I don't just, I mean, I understand where parents, where some who are concerned about this are coming from. At the same time, uh, you know, we elect governments to come up with, with compromises, essentially. That's why we elect them. We don't elect them to, to, to sort of bully their way through their legislation. We elect them to come up with compromises. And this feels like one of those situations, uh, you know, specifically in places like Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, where they've already put these policies into place. This feels like the time where a government will sit down on a very, what is a sensitive issue, and try and work out some kind of compromise, because I think there is a compromise here somewhere, but it doesn't look like the notwithstanding clause. 
And it doesn't look like formulating this as if it's about a parent's right to control the child's name. So this isn't about, uh, you know, when we see these statements about um, this is important because it's a parent um, has the right to information about their child. That's not what this policy says. This policy says the parent chooses and has to consent to what the child is called. So even when people start talking about it, like, of course, parents, all, of course, we want to know what our children are doing. But formulating this as a rights thing also kind of places this as if it's kids and parents in conflict, which they wouldn't be in conflict, but for a policy articulated in this way. Yeah, so... It would be great to have other forums to discuss how to support kids in in a changing world rather than deciding that it's best done by having parents make a decision. Yeah. And parents, too, who have to face a changing world that their kids are in and feel a loss of control. I mean, I get that. You know, I get that. It's 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 not. I mean, this is a tough one. That's why it feels so unfortunate that it's being weaponized to this extent, because it is a touchy topic. And it is one of those ones that I think if we were to come together and talk about it, I mean, it's in the courts now and that's where it's going to be. And here we are with the not, we'll talk about the notwithstanding clause and how it's used uh, coming up in just a second. But um, I guess what happens with this case now? I mean, if, if in fact, uh, they reconvene on the 10th of October, invoke the notwithstanding clause. I guess that's it then, right? That's it for a period of time. Well, it renders the discussion about the constitutionality irrelevant. So it shuts down a place in which people can gather to kind of talk about the challenges and the the um, legitimate fears people have and how to address them. I mean, I think it's telling that what the <laughs> what the premier says is that they need to do this to protect their policy which I find that very different than thinking about how to protect um, the autonomy, the integrity, and the safety of children. Right. Rebecca like Johnson the is... defense is right. policy. There we go. Rebecca Johnson is a professor of law at the University of Victoria. We're talking about Scott Moe, Saskatchewan's premier today, announcing he's going to invoke the notwithstanding clause after a Saskatchewan judge granted an injunction, a temporary one, an injunction nonetheless, pausing their pronoun policy for schools, which says that if you are under 16 and a student, you want to change your name and your pronouns at school, your parents must be informed and they must consent and of course, the judge said, well, this, you know, the, the, the rights of the child in this one override your concerns and went through the reasons why. And uh, the reaction from the premier was to say, well, forget it. We're going to invoke the notwithstanding clause, which seems like an awfully, uh, an awfully drastic option here, considering it was only a pause until the court could actually hear it. Uh, but there you have it. Uh, Rebecca, you know, New Brunswick, obviously, their similar policy is being challenged in the courts as well. Uh, do you see sort of a knock-on effect from, from this decision by Saskatchewan? I guess I guess we have to... The, the, now we're going into the realm of re- great political questions on the knock-on right. effect. And the question is, what as a society do we want to knock on? So I think there's really good reasons for us, uh, us, your listeners, the rest of us, not only our politicians, but those of us who elect them, to start thinking about what it means for us to live in a democracy and why it matters for us to not simply um, leave all the power into the hands of our elected representatives, but to have chances to really um, talk about the issues that need to be discussed. So, I mean, I, uh, my, I read my children were born in New Brunswick. My first Mm -hmm. job was there. And I do recall when I was living in New Brunswick at the time, there was a lot of debates then as well about children having access to information about, you know, reproduction in the high school. So there's a kind of um, 
a history of conflicts around this question of what uh, it means to protect children and ways to protect children by denying them access to information. So this, I wasn't surprised to see it come out of uh, New Brunswick as much as I, I love the province. My children were born there. There's, you know, we live in a robust country, but those kinds of questions have emerged there in the past. Right. And so I am, I was surprised to see Saskatchewan pick it up. Yeah. A bit about the notwithstanding clause. I mean, I was mentioning off the top that I, I grew up in Quebec. I grew up in Montreal. And I remember when the notwithstanding clause was invoked for the very first time, uh, when its language charters were, were, language rules were basically declared unconstitutional. Now, of course, I grew up in an English-speaking family. Yeah. Uh, now, growing up as an English-speaking guy in Montreal, is, I'll never complain about that. But I know what it's like to have a province that you speak pay your taxes to uh, quash your rights. And, and, that, and, I, and I'm, I'm, of, I'm of the privileged few. And it's not a nice feeling. And I think sometimes when uh, premiers invoke the notwithstanding clause, they don't understand whose rights they're crushing with it. Because the Charter of Rights is a big deal in this country. And if you decide to step on it, you better have a mighty good reason to do it. And I feel like m- more and more it's being used Frivolous, frivolous, frivolously, excuse me, frivolously, um, for things that could be settled in many different ways. They don't need you. Don't need the nuclear option. When we first, when the charter first came into effect in Canada, one of the things that was really debated was uh, the power of having a really robust um, legislative. Uh, Uh, like we legislated in Canada. So a lot of the great things that we've done historically, we did through, through political decision-making by our governments, not by fighting in courts. So there were really good reasons back then in the eighties for people to be worried that putting everything into the court would uh, kind of defang our political energies to, to change the world through politics, which was what kind of Canada did. We brought things in, in that form in the past. So when it came in, people were afraid of of the politicization of rights. But I think what we see in this case is um, we're not seeing evidence where a court is overturning the well-reasoned, you know, legislative framework that has come out of consultations and policy documents and, you know, consultations and, um, you know, all of that research None of that. We've seen none of that here. What we've seen is kind of the assertion of bare power by a government in nine days to put into place something that's really quite uh, quite far-reaching, uh, using the language of parental rights. But there's nothing in this legislation on my read of it that actually addresses the deep concern. It's like using the rhetoric of child of of parental rights without full democratic involvement you know, within the province, and then stopping the charter as a mean, and then saying we can't use the charter either. So it's almost like anti-democratic and anti-political and anti-judiciary and anti, like there's something about this that really feels like an assertion of bare power. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, this one, this one, I mean, I, I, there was a huge backlash to Doug Ford as well when he invoked it uh, with, with the, in the CUPE negotiations. But this one, this one feels, this one feels different. This one feels really frivolous. And it'll be good for people um, to be talking, I think, with their neighbors and with their families about uh, the reason, about how to think about why this is a problem, why it's a problem if we can't wait for reasoned debate, and why it's a problem if people feel the need to protect a policy rather than to protect kind of the spirit of um, advancing the freedom of young people 
and trying to find ways of negotiating complicated current conditions. Right? Yeah, of which there are many. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Speaking of games, politics were going full swing in the House of Commons today. They were back for the first time, or back sitting for the first time since uh, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, resigned over that invitation extended to a former Nazi soldier to attend uh, Vladimir Zelensky's uh, address to Parliament last Friday. Now they're trying to figure out how to address it to make sure it doesn't happen again. So it's turned into to this incredible political bickering back and forth. You'll remember, of course, that um, MPs all applauded uh, Yaroslav Hunka. He was introduced by the Speaker as a Canadian hero. Uh, then, of course, it turned out that he had been uh, that he had served with the Nazis um, in Ukraine or in that area back in the in the forties. Come to this country afterwards, and so it's created this huge fear. It's been an embarrassment right around the world. There's no two ways about how embarrassing this has been for Canada for that to have happened. The finger pointing, though, has been interesting to watch. Uh, the Prime Minister apologized on behalf of Parliament. He didn't apologize on behalf of himself, mainly because they say that this was all done out of the Speaker's office and they had no knowledge of the invitation or the plan to acknowledge Hunka during Zelensky's visit. So today the Conservatives brought in a motion. They want to study it as a committee. They actually called everybody but the Speaker's office, which which seems a bit a bit ridiculous because clearly this is a mistake that happened in the Speaker's office. There's been a lot of talk about vetting. Why wasn't he vetted? Well, vetting how? I mean, clearly he wasn't a security risk. He's 98, and he doesn't have a criminal record. He came to this country decades and decades and decades ago. You would have had to Google him, but I guess no one bothered to do that. So this idea somehow that people are just led into parliament and that every single person who attends parliament when someone like Joe Biden or Zelensky are there is a bit strange. I mean, they would do a cursory check, I suppose, on some of them. There's also security at the door. Not like you can bring anything in. But this isn't, you know, this is not what people think it is. It's much more laid back than that in some ways, specifically in this case, because um, Mr. Hunka was a constituent of the speakers. He sat in the speaker's area, right, which is sort of reserved for the speaker. And the speaker has a lot of control over what goes on in parliament, not the government, the speaker. I know it sounds strange, but it's true. The speaker, in fact, is independent. They're no longer, I mean, even though it was a liberal MP, who no longer, um, but they're independent once they become the speaker of the house. They're sort of the, the dean of the realm of parliament, the houses of parliament, both the speaker of the house and the speaker of the senate. So we wanted to dig into this a little bit more because it feels like there's been a lot going on around, you know, people who've never set foot in parliament talking about, I can't believe this possibly could have happened. I agree. I can't believe this happened. But why did it happen? And how do you make sure it doesn't happen again? That's what a lot of the calls are these days. So we thought we'd reach out to someone who actually knows this stuff inside out. Roy Norton is Canada's former chief of protocol. That means that's what he did. He knows how all of this stuff works. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo, and he joins us now. Thank you so much. Good to meet you, Mr. O'Hara Burn. I think there's been so much speculation uh, over the past week or so, just a little bit less than a week, it'll be a week tomorrow, about what a guest list for an event such as this might look like. Um, Now, the speaker has, and people always forget this, uh, because he's been called, the former speaker now has been called a liberal speaker for days on end, which of course he's not, he's the the speaker. Uh, They have a huge amount of power over what goes on in parliament. You bet. The speaker is in charge. The, the two speakers are in charge in, in reality. There's a speaker in the Senate as well. And um, uh, parliamentary protocol reports duly or jointly to the two of them. 
but for an event that's taking place in the House of Commons chamber, unquestionably, the Speaker of the House of Commons is numero uno, and um, uh, people defer. Uh, so, um, including his staff, um, I, I suspect that, I don't know this, but I suspect that if the Speaker uh, presented to his staff or to parliamentary protocol a name from his riding, of somebody whom he would like to come and sit in his gallery, in the Speaker's gallery. Nobody would would question that. Nobody would challenge it. No one would say, well, we must vet this person, Mr. Speaker, before we can possibly extend the invitation. Again, I don't know that for certain, but I do know for certain, at least based on how things used to work, and I believe how they still work, that no one would have consulted the Prime Minister's office or uh, Global Affairs Canada, the Foreign Affairs Department, uh, much as the Prime Minister's office would like to know uh, who's coming, much as Global Affairs Canada would like to know who's coming, uh, that information simply would not be shared uh, in the normal course because Parliament is supreme and the Speaker is numero uno uh, among uh, within the supremacy of Parliament. And... Um, they don't. Uh, they don't um, defer uh, to, um, and 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 I don't know that they should. Uh, and I don't know that that under previous governments, previous speakers, or projecting ahead to future governments and future speakers, I don't know that that would be any different, uh, because speakers feel that they represent the integrity of Parliament uh, and um, and parliamentarians. Uh, and that that is distinct and different from government, and that government uh, has no particular role to play uh, when it comes to who is sitting in the people's chamber, the House of Commons, uh, for an event that the Speaker has authorized to proceed. And don't forget that there aren't any addresses to Parliament by foreign visitors unless the Speaker himself agrees, and I am familiar with instances in the past, where the Speaker has been requested to agree and has declined to agree. Wow. That much. I mean, I think people forget this, that governments come and go, speakers come and go, but Parliament is Parliament, right? It is still always the people's house, regardless of who's sitting in it. Precisely. Continuity is important. Uh, and expectations of speakers are such that, uh, on the part of parliamentarians, uh, are such that they will defend the rights, as it were, of Parliament uh, and and not defer to government. And one of the ways, I mean, you we had this little discussion at the beginning as to whether he's a liberal speaker or the speaker. Um, he was elected as a liberal. Uh, but one of the ways in which speakers distinguish themselves, move on from their partisan affiliation, uh, is sometimes to challenge the government of the day uh, and act on behalf of parliamentarians rather than deferring to government, which would, if they were to do the latter, they would reinforce the notion that they are in this instance, a liberal speaker. So in your experience, if the speaker, the former speaker at this point, Anthony Rhoda, and we'll keep in mind that uh, that Mr. Hunka was in fact one of his constituents, which adds a different wrinkle to all of this as well. It was, you know, there were there was and and that he was sitting in the speaker's uh, area of of the of the gallery, which is his, in other words, to assign. That mm -hmm. there wouldn't necessarily have been any need. In fact, it might have been seen as bad form for the government to say, "Let me see that list." The government always would like to see the list. 
and I've I've been mandated to secure uh, such lists in the <laughs> past, and and uh, essentially have been told uh, this is you know mind your own business. Uh, this is this is not for the government to uh, to be involved with. Uh, the government can submit to be sure uh, a number of names and. Whatever that number is will be stipulated by the speaker, as in we can accommodate X number of names um, submitted by the prime minister, uh, and we can accommodate X number of names submitted by Foreign Affairs Canada, because it's a uh, because the whole event surrounds a foreign visitor. Um, foreign Affairs will reach out to the embassy, for example, of the in this case the Ukrainian embassy. Uh, there would be. You know, previous Canadian ambassadors to Ukraine. There would be Canadian business persons who do a lot of business in Ukraine, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And those would be on a government list submitted uh, to Parliament. Uh, but Parliament retains the right, the Speaker Parliamentary Protocol retains the right to decide how many of these people to sit in the end. Um, I mean, hopefully there are no surprises. There's there's no uh, nobody... Uh, showing up thinking that they're going to get a seat and and told at the last minute that they that they won't that they can't be seated uh so numbers and allocations become important but the authority is retained by the speaker the list uh is never shared with the prime minister's office or with global affairs canada uh which has allows me to say uh, in response to other media outlets uh, the PMO would have had zero opportunity uh, to influence uh, who it is uh, the speaker, in this case, uh, Mr. Rota, uh, invited personally, in this case, Mr. Honka, uh, to, uh, they wouldn't have known that Mr. Honka was coming. They wouldn't have been told. Uh, if they had asked, they would have been told to take a hike. And so uh, the rest is history. Indeed. Roy Norton is with us. He's Canada's former chief of protocol and an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo now. We're talking about what it takes to get an invite to Parliament to see someone like President Zelensky speak. And we've obviously known what inviting someone who has caused a huge amount of embarrassment to the country, can. Ha- what happens when that happens. Uh, the Speaker, Anthony Rota, has resigned. He's taken full responsibility for this. Uh, a lot of people are still pointing the finger at the government and saying, There should have been more. We should have known. Well, of course, in hindsight, yes. But in terms of a security threat, uh, I don't think he would have shown up anywhere. I mean, this gentleman's 98, and I don't think he has Mm -hmm. any record. There's security at the door when you come in. I mean, I've just been a bit confused by the whole idea of he should have been vetted. Well, other than a Google search in terms of would he be unsavory, like would his past be unsavory, I'm not sure he would have ever even shown up in 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 a vet, quote unquote. Well, it's a fair point. He, uh, if if global affairs were doing the vetting, as obviously they do for any event that the prime minister would host outside of parliament, um, they would do a security check to be sure, uh, as in against an RCMP and potentially a CSIS database. Global affairs protocol office has an embedded RCMP officer with access to their databases. But I think you're right. Uh, if Mr. Hunka's name had been available to Global Affairs, it's likely that nothing would have shown up. But at Global Affairs, we also do, and this is very labor intensive, uh, using search engines uh, like Google, uh, we we uh, try to research 
to the extent possible. Uh, and it's not foolproof, uh, to be sure, but we try to research as much as we can, as extensively as we can, uh, about every name that is proposed. Names that are proposed from within the department, names that are proposed from the prime minister's office, names that come from anywhere, before we advance a list to the prime minister uh, of potential invitees, um, we will check everybody to the greatest extent possible. And frankly, we would hope that, that the parliamentary protocol uh, would do the same thing uh, with any name that was proposed by the opposition leader, uh, by par individual parliamentarians, by the speaker. Um, yes. I would think at minimum, at minimum, a speaker would say to his staff, um, you know, please challenge me, uh, as in uh, review these names and don't defer just because it's come from me. Uh, if you find anything that suggests that this is somebody who shouldn't be invited, uh, then indicate that and we'll act accordingly. Um, they could uh, conceivably uh, ask Global Affairs Canada to review the list from the point of view of security, as distinct from political embarrassment, um, uh, because I'm not sure that the speaker and parliamentary protocol have access to RCMP databases. In fact, I doubt that they do. Um, but that would necessitate their being willing to share the list with the government, uh, Global Affairs Canada, and and you know, maybe some modus operandi can be found whereby they could have confidence that Global Affairs wouldn't onwardly share the list with anybody else, that it would be uh, reviewed exclusively from the point of view of security interests. Uh, but there are ways certainly to improve the system and to de-silo the system um, going forward uh, that would not be 100% perfect, would not be 100% foolproof, but you made the point that it's likely the case Googling Mr. Hunka, uh, one would have found information. Right. And, and, you know, there was, I mean, up until recently, there was uh, the University of Alberta had a, an endowment fund in his name. I mean, I, I guess I just, I'm wondering, there's a lot of hindsight going on. I just feel like as awful as this has been, it doesn't surprise me that it happened. I know and I know that it's going to be, there's going to be attempts made to make sure it never happens again, but the way it unfolded, it does not surprise me. It seems absolutely shocking, but it doesn't surprise me that somehow this was missed, given the silos that you talk about. Um, and I guess we just have to see how they're going to try to prevent this from happening again. Mr. Norton, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, in addition to survivors of Nazi atrocities in Poland, among other nations. That was the former Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, earlier this week, apologizing for not only inviting um, someone who had fought with a Nazi unit in the Second World War, but also acknowledging him in Parliament during President Zelensky's visit, both calling him a great Ukrainian and great Canadian hero. Um, today, I mean, the fallout from this has been 
uh, dramatic. I mean, and the embarrassment has been dramatic and global as well. The University of Alberta announced today it's returning endowment funds from the family of that same uh, Yaroslav Hunka. Uh, since 2019, the university's Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies had had a $30,000 endowment carrying its name, so they've decided to drop that. Um, again, I mean, when he was introduced in, in Parliament last week, it even took, I mean, all MPs stood up and, and, and applauded. And even you, you could feel, feel even there that no one quite clued in to the fact that there might be an issue here around, well, who exactly did he, if he, if he was fighting the Russians uh, in the 40s, in the early 40s, who was he fighting for, right? So there is a problem in this country with how much we know about the history of that time. Uh, part of that issue is that in the immediate years after the war, uh, there were many who came to this country. Now, again, they were vetted at times, and there's certainly don't want to cast aspersions on everyone. But a lot of what happened in that post-war period and who was allowed to come to the country and why is still pretty much secret. Now, we had a commission uh, back in the 80s to look into these issues. They sort of came up with some answers around thinking that some of these, you know, the, the, this 14th Waffen Grenadier Division uh, or the first Galatian uh, of the SS that there weren't, in fact, responsible for war crimes. But it turns out that at the time, they didn't have access to a lot of the documentation that was sitting behind the Iron, Iron Curtain at the time. To make things more troubling now, a lot of people in this country don't have access to their documentation. It's been 40 years. And a lot of what was known during this commission or was discovered, and a lot of what sits in the archives from way, way back in the post-war period, is still kind of off limits to Canadians. We don't know who came to this country exactly and why. And this whole affair has been a very cruel and very sobering reminder that you, if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it, right? I mean, that's how the saying goes. And we know far too little about that time. Again, this is sensitive stuff. It's not to cast aspersions on any community at any time. We also understand the circumstances in, in, in Eastern Europe at the time. But all that being said, wouldn't it be nice if we just knew more about it? And someone who has been asking for that for a long time now and is certainly asking for that more now is Jan Grabowski. By the way, the B'nai B'rith demanded this week that Ottawa take this opportunity to finally open all Holocaust-related records to the public. Uh, Jan Grabowski is a professor of history at the University of Ottawa. He happens to be in Warsaw, and he joins me from there. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on the program. This has been one of those situations where I, I think the, the, the event itself has been shocking, and, and clearly there's been resignations and an apology and so forth, uh, but it speaks to something uh, broader and deeper, something about Canada's post-war history as well. Uh, when you saw what unfolded with, uh, with, with Yaroslav Hunka, uh, what should we be taking away from this as Canadians? Uh, well, first lesson is uh, learn a bit more. We should learn a bit more history. And, you know, I am actually teaching classes on the Holocaust at 10 minutes walking from the Parliament Hill. And, you know, had any of the staffers taken one of my lectures, probably this uh, this event would not have happened. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, it's we need to we need to refocus a bit and understand that ignore that we can ignore history, but uh, at a certain risk. Um, and what happened should have never happened. I'm baffled, surprised, amazed even how it could um, have happened. Uh, but of course, this uh, historical innocence, if I can say so, is at the bottom of this of this issue. 
take me back in that case to to the 40, the late 40s and the early 50s, when when in fact there were, I guess, I mean, the, the, the post post-war Europe where the dust was settling in post-war Europe and people were immigrating and leaving and coming to new countries. What was Canada doing at that point? And what should be what we should what should we be looking back at? Because it is at this point, of course, as we know, a long time ago. Right. I mean, the thing is, it was it was like a confusing, very confusing landscape, especially seen from uh, from our side of the Atlantic. However, people in in the Canadian administration knew fairly well what was going on in Europe. And what you had, you had thousands, uh, tens, and hundreds of thousands of people desperate to get elsewhere to to basically, you know, find uh, rebuild their lives far away from horrors which they have experienced before. Um, and um, in the in Great Britain, in after 1945, uh, you had thousands and thousands of uh, uh, so-called DPs, uh, displaced persons, um, um, among them thousands of Ukrainians, Poles, uh, uh, Jews, uh, you name them, um, uh, who uh, tried to, who, who were seeking um, um, passage to North America. Now, with uh, with the Ukrainians here, you have a particularly uh, interesting situation, since uh, we are dealing here with um, and thousands of uh, of ex-soldiers who were allies of the of the Nazis, who are actually members of uh, of uh, Waffen SS um, Grenadier Division, so-called Hawitschna or Galician, as they were known. Uh, but there were many more. There were many more uh, different formations, military units made up of uh, Ukrainians, mostly from Western Ukraine, um, which joined forces with with the Nazis in hope of you know. Very Various hopes. One of them rebuilding uh, independent Ukraine, or striking against the hated Soviet Union, uh, or also striking against the hated Jews. Um, so you have these people who had, you could say, impeccable anti-communist credentials, right. and these impeccable anti-communist credentials were actually more and more appreciated after 1945. So um, with little pressure, we don't know exactly what kind of pressure because many documents are still not accessible in Canadian archives, right? Um, many uh, There were pressures uh, put on Canadian officials to let these Ukrainians in. They were seen as, you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, as valuable allies in a struggle against communism. And the British authorities didn't want them anymore, actually, in Great Britain. Uh, uh, there was also probably, from what we know, uh, some kind of uh, of quiet support from the Vatican. Now, one has to know that these particular Ukrainians, most of them from Western Ukraine, are Greek Catholics. In other words, they recognize the authority of the Pope. Um, they call them Unites. In any case, and so there was the support and... Canadian authorities opened the door. It was quite a unique, actually, decision by 4950 to let several thousand of these people without any individual vetting uh, to let them into the country. Right. And as you mentioned, this was a perfect confluence of, of issues. The, the Iron Curtain had fallen, anti-communism anti had become primordial. Uh, people were keen to forget about what had happened during the war. There was a huge, of course, Ukrainian diaspora here already. So, And the, and the Catholic side of this, there's a whole bunch of things coming into play at the same time. I thought, though, if I remember correctly, and I was still just in high school at the time, but we had a whole commission to look into this. What happened with that? 
And the Shen Commission, which was actually formed in back in 1986, uh, there was a pressure, some pressure exerted in early 1980s uh, by the, uh, Simon Wiesenthal, who was chasing, who was tracking down Nazi criminals, and who found out that very many of these criminals were actually hiding in Canada. And um, the pressure was born on Canadian authorities to do something. And this commission has been formed. Um, the problem is that they didn't have much access in terms of uh, um, of archives, okay? Now, back in 1986, uh, you still have, you know, communism in Eastern Europe, and the Shen Commission would not really know much more uh, than they could find in Canadian archives. And uh, now, significantly, we historians are still not allowed to see the entire documentation of the Shen Commission, which is by itself very significant and telling, right? There are parts of it which have been made secret. I think it's long overdue to to make them um, available to all researchers or ever, anyone who was interested. Um, so uh, if we were, so the Shen Commission was working with a bit of hands tied behind its back because they didn't have access to crucial archives which were in the Soviet Union, in Poland, in Ukraine, I mean, which was a part of Soviet Union back then. Um, and these archives, these document, the documentation became, uh, well, I'm using this documentation now. It's available since, let's say, for the last 20, 20 some years, since the beginning of this century. Um, these archives, uh, definitely in Poland, uh, and much of the crimes committed by, um, uh, by these, um, uh, by this uh, Waffen SS Ukrainian unit, uh, has, have been done actually on the Eastern Polish borderlands and have been mm -hmm. investigated. So a lot of information came to light. And, uh, and I think that we know, we could know way more than than we do. Right. So you're saying that at the time, the commission didn't have access to all the documentation it needed. And even today, you don't have access to what the commission had access to, uh, or, or fully. Well, I have, yeah, I have more access to archives in Eastern Europe than I have sometimes to archives in Canada. Just now, a colleague of mine is working in Ottawa archives at Wellington Street. She came from Poland to do some research exactly in this in this uh, in this issue and she basically ran into roadblocks on all some all possible um places and practically all of the files she wanted to access were restricted one one way or another so this is this is quite ironic that i have in poland more access to uh, these fragile let's say files than uh, i have in auto um I, I, what should we do now? Because it feels like all of a sudden there's been a lot of attention paid to this. It may not last, but it feels like these are questions that should and need to be answered at some point. Because again, as we've seen from, you know, I, I was at the 70th anniversary of, of Auschwitz, uh, you know, about a decade ago, a lot of those who were involved are no longer with us. So that history is also dying with them. Right. Uh, well, so what uh, your question is, what can we do when uh, learning from mistakes is uh, step number one? And here, uh, obviously, I would say that some kind of a little inquiry would be in place uh, to find out, uh, first of all, what kind of documentation we have, uh, and to uh, lift this lid of secrecy off these issues, to make documents which are which should have been made a long time ago, publicly accessible, accessible, and uh, to, uh, to, in other words, to allow Canadians uh, to access information which is rightfully theirs. And we can see what happens in the absence of this uh, documentation. Now, the second, uh, the, the, the second thing is, I think that there is, it's perhaps a bit, a bit 
above my pay grade, by, but I would really suggest that a little commission inquire into what exactly happened in our parliament, because I am in Poland now, but I heard about this story right away. It has been a huge, uh, let's say, problem um, uh, on, on a world scale now for Canada. Um, and I must tell you that I have been invited by the Speaker of the House of Commons last December uh, to receive a very nice award, and I was recognized by the Speaker, and uh, I was applauded by MPs. It was a wonderful moment for me. But before I entered the Parliament, my CV was vetted on three different levels for two months, uh, and then I was queried and questioned before I set my foot in the Parliament. So, so on one hand, we should have an inquiry into uh, what happened in 1949-1950, and of course, on the other hand, a little inquiry about what happened, what what happened that made this situation a present for Putin and Russian propaganda, because that's what happened, unfortunately. Right. And that brings me to to the modern day, because, of course, the research that you do and the work that you do is sometimes not well received by those who would rather espouse these ideals than than sort of lift, put it, lift the lid off the history of them. Um, this is this has become, again, as I said, to understand the, the future or the present, you sort of have to under, better understand the past. And it feels like in many ways we've that that's still a work in progress in Canada. And we face new threats and we face Russian propaganda. Uh, you know, the thing is that we have to, as a society, we have to rethink our attitude to our, our past and to history. Uh, I have been as a professor of history in Ottawa for years. I have seen, let's say, the... Um, the lack of interest, let's say, uh, in from the from the from the governmental circles, from the authorities, in history as a topic, as a subject. Now, we as a nation, we barely, you know, avoided collapse uh, just over the last, you know, thirty years at least twice, and uh, due to let's say poor knowledge of history. So, if there is a lesson to be taken out, is we need to rethink the place of history uh, in our curricula, in schools, in universities, and and so so this might be a valuable lesson to take out from this. And of course, we have also to understand that in this case, the history of the Holocaust, you have here Jewish victims coming forward and are indignant, of course, about the uh, this recognition of an SS uh, a soldier in Canadian Parliament. We have to understand that Holocaust has become this universal symbol of evil. Uh, and that that even if we are more and more distant from the event itself, uh, the emotions run high, and there are people and institutions and states uh, which will deny or somehow um, uh, distort the history of the Holocaust. And I would really loathe to, to see Canada uh, be in any shape and form be involved in Holocaust uh, um, the distortion. Um, and the only way to combat this distortion of the history of the Holocaust and history as such is uh, liberating the access to data and and openly confronting the national past. And I wish us all uh, this uh, this kind of uh, of uh, solution reflection. Right. Even after eighty years, I guess sunlight sunlight would be the best disinfectant. Jan Grabowski, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. You may have seen the region of Nagorno-Karabakh back in the news today. You may have remembered it from back uh, many years ago after the fall of the Soviet Union. There was a war there that went on for quite a while between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Well, it's been under Azerbaijan's control, but there is an Armenian enclave there and has been for a very long time. That has started 
to disintegrate. And it has caused a humanitarian crisis as hundreds, tens of thousands at this point of ethnic Armenians flee into Armenia from uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. The number of people that have crossed over into Armenia by early today was about 70,000. It's a little bit higher than that. That's an estimated population of 120,000. So you can imagine just what an incredible proportion of ethnic Armenians are now fleeing back into Armenia. Now, Armenia is not a very big country, right? About two point some odd million. So getting that many people coming in all at once is causing a lot of strain there as well. And many more are still looking to evacuate. Uh, a week after that breakaway part of Nagorno-Karabakh surrendered following an Azerbaijani offensive. Now, the Azerbaijanis said last week uh, that they had regained full control of that disputed area, which lies within Azerbaijan's borders, but for decades sort of operated autonomously with a de facto government of its own. Now, uh, it's said that Armenians in the area could stay if they accepted Azerbaijani citizenship, but many don't want to do that. I mean, these two nations have been at war for a long time, been at conflict at least, for a very long time. So the decision instead has been made with their feet. And in many ways, uh, you don't want to, I mean, ethnic cleansing is a very strong word, but that's the end result here. The end result is that, um, you know, 120 somewhat, tens of thousands of, of ethnic Armenians are leaving that area. They're getting out because they're worried for what the future may hold. They're heading into Armenia. Now, Canada, of course, there's a big Armenian diaspora here. They've offered support and investment of $2.5 million in humanitarian aid today. Here's the Minister of International Development, uh, Ahmad Hussein. And Canada will always be there for the people of Armenia. And that is why we're moving forward with an initial contribution of $2.5 million to the International Red Cross to provide much needed uh, life-saving supplies to the people in Nagorno-Karabakh. We will always be there for the most vulnerable. Yeah, don't mind the music. That was something they posted to Twitter. He and Melanie Jolie, who did the foreign affairs minister, did the French part. And I don't know why they put the music bed there, but you get the point. We're, uh, we're offering up some support uh, for the Red Cross to try to handle this uh, sort of influx of people fleeing uh, into Armenia. Uh, joining me now is Chris Kilford. He is the director of the Canadian International Council. He's a former Canadian military attache in Turkey. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Hi, Ben, and I'm glad to be here tonight. A long history here. I think a lot of people may remember if they if they sort of deal go back into the Rolodex of time into the late 80s, early 90s, they'll remember what was happening in that part of the world. Uh, but a long history since the fall of the Soviet Union for Nagorno-Karabakh and the fight between Armenia and Azerbaijan for control. Yeah, I would say so. I think even today we're, we're we could easily say we're we're still looking at um, the Soviet Union convulsing. Um, right. This is just another piece of that puzzle that we're witnessing in places like Ukraine that we've seen in the past in, in Georgia, uh, likely more to come as the situation changes on the ground in, in Russia with the war in Ukraine. So, yes, I mean, this is a conflict that started when the Soviet Union began to collapse and in its first phase lasted until 1994. And, you know, to be frank, a lot of people forget that up to 900,000 Azeris were, were forced to flee uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the territory that was captured by Armenia in that period up till, till 1994. And so that was the situation uh, right up until till 2020. And, and I was the uh, defense attache to Turkey, as, as you mentioned, but I was right. also the defense attache to Azerbaijan. So right. I used to travel there a fair bit. 
Right. Yeah. And, 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 and so just so listeners, I mean, as you mentioned, yes, I should have mentioned that at the time, this has been, you know, no side is, both sides have quite a bit of blood on their hands in this one, don't they? Um, they, they do. I mean, they do. And I think it, it's in, it's, um, you know, it comes with the territory, unfortunately. Uh, it, if you go, you can go back quite, quite far in history. And this particular situation that we're watching on the ground right now that's happening to the, the Armenians that having, they're having to flee Nagorno-Karabakh, um, it, it it's, it's one more example of, of what you might say ethnic cleansing that's been going on for centuries in this region. Right. As these now independent nations that used to be SSRs all of a sudden come to terms with the, with the very large diversity within their own borders, right? I mean, we've seen it right across the former Eastern Bloc since, since the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, and we're still seeing it. You know, we're seeing things play out now. I mean, look, in 2023, we don't expect to see uh, tens of thousands of, of, of people on the roads fleeing into Armenia like like we are. We don't expect, of course, to see wars in Europe like we're, we're seeing in Ukraine. But, but across the region, and I mentioned the breakup of the Soviet Union, and, and it's still playing out, we're, we're seeing it in countries uh, like in the Baltic states, which are restricting access to, to Russian language for their ethnic Russian populations. I mean, these are, these are all real things happening right now. Yeah, it's amazing to think it's still the convulsions of stuff that happened in 1989, 1990, 1991, and so forth. What triggered this current? I mean, I think a lot of people always wonder, why all of a sudden is this region in the news again? Why are we seeing images of people fleeing, you know, with all their possessions on their back down this one now reopened road? What has triggered this sudden wave of, of exodus, the sudden exodus by Armenians? Well, I think in the, in, in the West, I mean, if you're not Armenian, and if you're not uh, Aziri, you you probably don't appreciate the very fierce animosity that exists between these two peoples, and um, there was no quarter to be given, and it was just a matter of time. Azerbaijan, of course, rich with oil money and gas money, Armenia, of course, not much much poorer, and Azerbaijan embarked on a on a, a program to reequip its military to acquire modern equipment. It was helped by Israel. It was helped a great deal by, by Turkey. And in late 2020, it, it saw an opportunity, I think, and uh, realized that they could uh, attack Armenia, um, succeed, and they did, of course, captured uh, a large part of the territory that they'd lost in 1994 and before, and uh, came out on top. And then it was just a question of, uh, at least for me anyway, it was just a question of when they were go- going to complete the job. You know, there was a peace treaty put in place. There were peacekeepers from Russia put in place, um, a corridor connecting Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh. But for me, it was just a case of when was Azerbaijan going to finish the job? Because I've always felt that uh, their intent at the end of the day is to make sure that all of the population departs. And looking at it so far uh, this morning, it's about 8 a.m., just after 8 a.m. in, in uh, Yerevan. Um, at least 80,000 people have fled. That right. means 40,000 are left. And I think it's just uh, a few more days or so before we'll be saying that there's just, uh, you know, handfuls of people left in Nagorno-Karabakh. Well, I, yes, I mean, certainly this uh, looks like an end game for Azerbaijan. Um, on the Armenian side, I mean, this is not a big country. As you mentioned already, this is not a rich country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to struggle to to take in 120,000 new people, especially considering uh, the conditions that they've been reporting uh, over the last little while in that small little area of Nagorno-Karabakh where they were uh, isolated, essentially, have been pretty brutal. They, they're not in good shape. 
No, and of course you you played the clip with Canada offering support, and I know European Union countries, the European Union itself, will offer support. So there will be uh, that in place. I know that Canada's, I think any day now, will announce the opening, official opening of our our embassy in Yerevan, so we'll have Mm -hmm. more diplomatic representation there, and we've promised a couple of people to the EU observer mission. Um, I I think it's it's all a bit too late in the sense of, of, of trying to stop Azerbaijan from completing their overall idea, you know, to clear the Armenian uh, ethnic population away. It's too late to stop that now. But what you would want to stop, of course, is any further aggression between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It, it is a poor country. It has relied on support uh, from from Russia. It's squeezed up against uh, Turkey. That border's been closed since 1993. I think if you're Armenian at the moment, you're probably wondering who who is actually going to come and help you, who who is there for you these days. Certainly Russia isn't. They're preoccupied. The United States uh, has, has been uh, holding some military exercises, but I, I don't think they can be counted on. So you must be feeling terribly, terribly isolated if you're, if you're in Yerevan uh, this morning uh, watching what's playing out. Yeah, I, I was reading that the Armenians were sort of complaining a bit about Russia's peacekeeping and not really being there for them. And the Russians essentially said, "You're the," or it was Vladimir Putin, I think, who said, you're the only friends we have, so stop complaining. So they, they find themselves in a really tough situation right now. I mean, again, this mm-hmm. battle with the, with Azerbaijan has been, you know, partly their doing as well over the years. Uh, but this feels like a really rough time for Armenia. And, and just handling this humanitarian aspect of it as well may well be very tough. Yeah, and I think also with the Russian peacekeepers, you know, from what I understand, they've been uh, quite rudderless. They've stood by and watched things happen. But what I understand is some of their best leaders have actually been uh, moved out of uh, Armenia and and into the war in Ukraine. So. Um, the, the folks that they probably have in charge uh, there, they're probably not sure what to do, um, not sure what direction, uh, you know, what Moscow is telling them. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's just complete confusion. It speaks to the larger problems that Russia is facing, whether it's on the battlefields in Ukraine or elsewhere on the on the periphery. Um, you know, these are these are the small things that are going to start to to play at the edges of Russia and and and, and will mean many of the countries on the periphery will start to wonder if they can count on Moscow going forward. Yeah, it's it's hard to think. I mean, not to draw too many comparisons, but but you know, the former Yugoslavia and how when that fell apart, the sort of the lid came off a lot of tensions. And now you look at the restlessness across what was the vast Soviet Union and all these different countries in Central Asia and so on, and in the in the, in the South Caucasus as these countries are. And you just think it's always been a cauldron that Russia managed to keep a lid on, and mm-hmm. it feels like Russia is less and less capable of doing that. Yeah, I think, you know, any ethnic minority right now in the region, no matter what country they're in, um, it, it's it's not it hasn't been easy. And I don't think it's going to get uh, uh, any any easier going forward. There are still lots of conflicts throughout the region uh, that are sort of frozen, but they're not because people still die. But you've got Transnistria, you've got um, Abkhazia, South Ossetia as examples in the region where ethnic minorities are are are, are there. So so what will be the future for them? Because some of them rely on Russian support, and if that, that support seems to be drifting away, um, there'll be folks looking at them and saying, well, you know, like in the case of Georgia. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I wait to see what might happen with Abkhazia and South Ossetia. If Russia is preoccupied and Chechnya starts up again, you know, what will happen? These are things that we'll watch in the coming months as, as we see uh, the war in Ukraine playing out um, alongside. You know, there are consequences. 
And this was one of them. Nagorno-Karabakh was one of them. Russia used to be there. They used to be heavily involved. They tried to uh, calm things down. But, but, you know, clearly now they've lost interest and they're letting it just play out. Chris, I mean, again, Canada has a large, fairly large, about 80,000, 100,000 large Armenian diaspora. Uh, the country will be under some pressure, I imagine, here to act, to do more. I know, I know we have a new ambassador to Yerevan that was announced last week, I think, or the week before. Mm-hmm. So there, are, there is movement there. But certainly, I would imagine this government will be quite sensitive to the demands of Armenia's diaspora here about uh, helping out. Yeah, uh, we, we we always we always have, but it it took a long time to have a you know full time diplomatic representation there, and we don't in Azerbaijan either. Um, so so we're quite light on the ground in the region, which can work against you at, at times if you don't have people there uh, full time uh, working uh, the halls, talking to people, trying to get an understanding of what's what's going on. But we're moving in that direction. But in the case of Armenia, in this particular situation, it's a little bit too late. Yeah. Um, but the Armenian diaspora did play a large role in, in 2020 here in Canada because a lot of the success that the Azeris had was uh, through the use of, of Turkish-supplied Bayraktar drones, which which right. flew above the battlefields and were knocking out air defense systems, knocking out tanks and all that sort of thing. And underneath was an L3 Harris targeting pod made in Burlington, Ontario. Made here, right, of course, yeah. Right, yes. And this um, this led to... We already had an arms embargo on Turkey because of their activities in, in Syria, but we then extended it to include the targeting pods for the Bayraktar drones. And that made Turkey, uh, Turkey very angry with us. We still have an arms embargo on them. And um, um, what that meant was they were forced to develop their own targeting pods. And, and they're not as good, um, uh, I, I understand. And so in the case of, of Ukraine, which has the Bayraktar drones, uh, which Turkey is supplying, Turkey is supplying, we actually send the targeting pods to Ukraine directly to get around our own arms embargo on, right. on Turkey. But it became about because the Armenian diaspora here is, is very well connected. Um, there's not a lot of love of, of, uh, of Turkey for historical reasons, as I'm Indeed, sure yes. the listeners, your listeners will know. And, um, and so they, they succeeded. But in this particular case, what we're witnessing now in the Gona Karabakh is too, it's, it's simply too late. And I think the main emphasis now will be looking after the, the refugees, um, making sure that there isn't a, a full-on border war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And so things calm down, perhaps with some sort of non-Russian peacekeeping force that can keep an eye on things. I guess, though, looking down the road, what we've actually done, or not us, but what has happened is that we've set up um, uh, for another round of, of, of animosity in the future. Uh, those people that have, have been displaced from Nagorno-Karabakh will, will, you know, they'll never go away. Their, their children will remember um, this. This will come back at some point. It, it, it's just history. We never seem to get past the past in, in that region. Yes, long memories uh, in, in that, well, in every part of the world, but, but certainly there's a long history there. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Uh, you know, sometimes I like to go pick out a song that reminds me of something, and I remember this song called Video Kids, and I couldn't for the life of me remember who sang it. I just remember that I had the 45. It came out in, I think, 82 or 83. It's Canadian. 
And I used to listen to it a lot. And I thought, what a great song for this segment. You know, I don't always, Talia picks a lot of the music. I pick some of the music. We, we share. Uh, but this one sort of um, was kind of appropriate for the, what we're about to talk about. So I spent uh, way too long <laughs> looking for that song today. Way too long. Uh, a good 20 minutes, 25 minutes hunting that down. I finally found it on this blog site that lists the top 100 Canadian songs of each year in the 80s. And then, uh, then I went down an 80s rabbit hole of 80s music, obscure 80s song, the Chilliwack song, You Don't Remember, for instance. All of it came up today. So to make a short story long, I was uh, thinking about video games today. And of course, back when that song came out, uh, along, along with other sort of video game theme songs, anyone remember Pac-Man Fever by Buckner and Garcia? I had that 45. Um, we used to play a lot of Pac-Man. Arcades were these awesome places at the time because home video game consoles didn't really come close to what you could get in an arcade, right? Um, not anymore, of course. Now it's it's... I mean, arcade games are great if you still can find one, but uh, but generally speaking, you can get it at home. You you know the experience you get at home beats any arcade experience of my youth, um, and and that's why this next story, this next guest is so interesting because um, he's just thirteen. He's thirteen even before his fourteenth birthday. He's sort of broken down barriers and made a name for himself in the video game creation world. He's from White Rock. Uh, he is behind this highly anticipated game called Astrolander. It's an action-adventure cooperative game. It's set to release on PlayStation 5 next year. Uh, he learned to code when he was six. He learned to code when he was six. I don't know what I was doing at six. I don't think it was coding. I think I was reading. But I certainly wasn't coding. Um, and he gained a video, an interest in video games through his dad. And then he sort of started to play around with it a bit, start to you know use his own stuff and try to figure out how these things work and develop programs. And then he created his own independent video game studio, which he calls Lost Cartridge Creations. Interestingly enough, and is that a lot of the inspiration for this new game was a game that I've actually played. And I can't say that about a lot of video games. It was an Atari's late 70s game. I think it was 79. And it was called Lunar Lander. And of course, I went back to look it up today to, to remind myself what it was all about. And it is the lowest tech game. It has these, I mean, at the time it was awesome. It sort of has all these, all these readings that you can follow. And basically all you're doing is you get this sort of mountainous surface of the moon and you have a few spots that give you bonus points. And all you're trying to do is position your lunar lander so that it lands gently and straight right on the spot. And it's just like squiggly lines and a little thing that this like these little, it's, it's very low tech. It's sort of Pong-esque. Um, but what a cool game. And this was kind of his inspiration for a lot of this. He was inspired by one of his favorite arcade games, which is, again, uh, Lunar Lander. So we thought we'd give him a call and find out what uh, what young Max Trest is all about and how he's managed to accomplish so much and with so much still to come at such a young age. And Max Trest joins me now. Max, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Uh, this is a really interesting time for you. So you, you've, you have this game in the works. I guess this is taking up a lot of your time these days. Yeah, well, it's really exciting to bring Ashtolander to the PlayStation 5 as an exclusive title and really make use of the DualSense features to really immerse players. Yeah, tell me a bit about this. I mean, maybe we'll start at the beginning. So you've been coding for a long time now. You may only be 13, about to turn 14 in November, but uh, you've been working at this kind of stuff for years now. Yeah, so I really started programming when I was uh, six or seven years old, um, beginning with simple programs like Scratch. And eventually I just moved on to more advanced programs and coding languages 
to Unity, which is the game engine, which is the game engine Astralander is being developed in. Amazing, and and there's an inspiration here, and I I think I think any listeners who are my age will be will be heartened to know that this kind of harkens back to a video game that you much like, which is from a very different era of video games, a very low tech Atari game from the late seventies. Yeah, so really this game. Um, was more inspired by Lunarlander, um, but it's really grown to be so much more now. It's really an adventure game uh, with two different characters. You'll join on the adventure. Right. Tell me a bit about your how you landed on Lunarlander, because it, when I went back to look at it, obviously, I think I played it back in the day. It's, it's a really low, t- I mean, it's really a, a product of its time and it's very low tech. What did you like about it? What captured your imagination about that old game? I've always been a huge fan of space, and I really like the replayability. You can always come back and try landing again. And I want to really expand on the idea, but bring it into the modern era with the characters and more mechanics, and obviously now the dual sense, which really immerses players. Yeah, I saw a preview for your game, which you can see on YouTube now. And if you compare it to the original, I mean, it is absolutely night and day uh, different. How did you set about sort of building this new world, really, this new story for Astroland? It was really a lot of brainstorming. Um, I really wanted to make a game that you could remember and would sort of be associated with the PlayStation 5 with haptic and feedback, the two characters you'll join on the adventure. And it ended up really working out. There's the cyber quacks, which are the rubber ducks with laser eyes, and there's going to be cyber moves later on and a lot more characters. How do you how do you brainstorm for something like that? Because when you see uh, even the preview for Astrolander, I mean, you've built a whole world here. And if you look at Lunarlander, I know I don't want to spend too much time talking about Lunarlander, but there's very little world in Lunarlander. You're basically, basically just trying to land a Lunarlander on what looks like kind of a surface of the moon and squiggly lines. But here you built this whole world. How do you go about sort of coming up with the ideas and brainstorming and all that stuff? It's really just kind of thinking about things. Um, I'm like, it's, it's always a combination of looking at uh, other games, um, looking at my own, uh, uh, past references for my other projects I've worked on and really just a combination of really just world, the world around us. Amazing. How much time does it take? Because it can't be a simple process to build something as elaborate as, as you have. Yeah, it's, it takes a while, but the folks have only been working on the new version of Astrolander for the PS5 for about six months now, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, which is relatively quick for game development. Games usually take years to make, um, but it's been a really exciting time, and I'm just really happy that I'm able to bring it to the PlayStation 5. Right. Tell me about what you brought it to Seattle last year, because I guess there have been some some sort of uh, some milestone moments in this whole process for you. Yeah, so before the game was originally coming to PC Steam, um, so I was bringing what I call the legacy demo to a whole bunch of shows, getting feedback on the game, and of course marketing it. And at one of these events, uh, Seattle Indies Expo, um, I met with Shuhei Yoshida, the head of PlayStation Indies and former president of SIE Worldwide Studios, as well as John Eternal, who's the former lead of partner development, and the rest of the PlayStation team. And they really loved the game so much that they ended up offering me the chance to bring it to PlayStation 5. And I really took that opportunity to really expand on the game, add new graphics, new gameplay, and of course, immerse the players with the dual sense and its special features. Were you surprised by how positive they were uh, to, to what you brought them? It was really exciting. Um, it was quite the experience. I've received tons of great feedback on the game, but to really be able to expand on it and to see their reaction, it was amazing. Yeah. 
Um, right now, you told me, of course, you're homeschooled. Uh, you're well in advance of your studies because I know you're taking some time to build this. Uh, tell me a bit about that. I mean, clearly, that you're able to do all all this at once. That's a busy schedule for a 13 year old. Yeah, it is a, a lot of work, but I've been homeschooled um, for a little bit now, and I have a whole bunch of high school uh, credits, especially for computer science 11 and 12, entrepreneurship 12, and a whole bunch of other courses. Um, so I'm sort of ahead of my studies and trying to focus on Ashtolanders. It's just such an amazing opportunity. Yeah, no kidding. How much work do you have to do? I mean, what happens uh, What happens behind the scenes? Because I think a lot of people kind of know how a movie is made. Uh, they might know how a, how a song is built. But I don't know how many people know how a video game is put together. So you have this idea. Uh, you've built on it. Uh, obviously, Sony's in on this. What do you do with it now? What needs to be done before it's released uh, next year? Yeah, it's a lot of late nights, but um, there's still a lot to get done. I want to work on more levels and then uh, more mechanics in the future. I have some pickups that are going to be in the game and some more really exciting surprises. I don't want to go too much or reveal too much about the game, but there's going to be some really exciting things. So stay tuned for that. Indeed. And, and you, you've mentioned some of the bells and whistles as well. Like this is a pretty immersive game that you're, that you're building. And, that, and that's, I mean, that's a long way from, from Lunar Lander, I can say from experience. Yeah, so the game actually uses the DualSense wireless controller for the PS5. So, for example, there's advanced haptics that will allow you to feel the world around you. Um, So, for example, when you're in the seaweed, you'll be able to feel it surrounding your ship, or you'll have to use the touchpad to hit the cyber cracks with tidal waves. Um, There's adaptive triggers that will change intensity. So there'll be force feedback, for example, when you hit the atmosphere and you'll have to trigger back. And there'll be lots of really immersive features in the game. Amazing. What's been the reaction of sort of family and friends to all this? Because this is a big deal. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing reaction. Even on the web, people are comparing it to one of the PS5's biggest games, uh, Astro's Playroom. And there's just been so much positive feedback. It's really exciting. Yeah. What about just for you? I mean, it's a lot of work to do at 13. I mean, I, I was trying to, I think at 13, I had a paper route, right? I mean, that was about as busy as I got and school and friends. Um, do you find time to sort of balance all this stuff or are you pretty much just full on on the game? Yeah, I find it sort of both fun to work on and almost a fun hobby in the same way that it's also um, a business. So it's really not considered work to me. It's just a lot of fun working on the game and coming up with new ideas and sharing it with players. Yeah. What kind of your parents must be involved in this as well. What kind of help do you get? What kind of support are you getting? Uh, my, My dad usually helps me brainstorm, but I mostly work on the game myself. I do all the coding. I do the art. Um, but it's, it, it, my dad does occasionally help me, but I try to do most of it myself. And a lot of the game is based on my ideas. Oh, wow. Um, what do, I mean, you already have a video game, uh, workshop, essentially, this is not going to be your only one. Uh, what would you like to do? I mean, you've, you've already accomplished so much now when you look forward a few years, what's, what's the perfect world for Max? In the future, I'm thinking possibly a sequel or even a trilogy for Astrolander. Um, I can't say too much right now, right. Um, but I hope there's going to be some really exciting developments. Do you think, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier that this was kind of a, something you're obviously very good at and it's a hobby of yours. Uh, do you have any thoughts about what you'd like to do in the in the more distant future, sort of as a career? Is it, you, you talked about space. You kind of have the world at your, uh, you kind of have the world as your oyster at this point, Max. Yeah, well, I want to really continue game development. Uh, maybe launching Lost Coast Creations as a really full-time, big-time studio. Um, and maybe even possibly work at PlayStation. Yeah. 
I mean, so many people, so many teens and, and, and adults, for that matter, just play video games, right? They like to play them. They don't necessarily like to know what's going on behind the scenes or how they're built. Uh, at what point did you sort of think, okay, I like video games, but I think I can actually make video games because that's a big step. It, it was funny you mentioned that because I always said I was always more interested in creating games than I was really playing them. Um, oh, really? Of course, I do enjoy playing games, but I really spend most of my time uh, creating them even when I was young. Wow. So you actually enjoy the, the creation. You would enjoy making a movie more than watching a movie, for instance. Yeah, <laughs> I guess you could say that. Wow. So what next? What what now in the in, in the sort of near future? Because I know I guess twenty twenty four is the launch date. They're already promoing it, so that's that's pretty must be cool for you to see the promos. They're great looking, by the way. Yeah, thank you. The first publicly playable demo will be at GeekGovCon in Seattle, Washington, on October seventh to eighth. Um, it's going to also be at the Snowco Toy Show in Audemars Market in November, and I have a, possibly going to be at a few other events. Um, I'm hoping this November, December to launch the game publicly as a demo on the PlayStation Store. So hopefully stay tuned for that. Wow. Uh, well, Max, uh, congratulations. Best of luck. We look forward to seeing this come out. It looks like it's going to be a huge success and can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you.